Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. I'll be reading from Luke 8, 40 through 56 this morning. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Awesome. Great story. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. Uh, and, and there's some historical things going on here that I want us to know. So before we jump in the story of Luke, I want to remind us of what's happening here in the story of, of Israel. They're God's chosen people. And God started a covenant with them back with Abraham and said, you'll be my people. We're going to enter this covenant relationship. And then throughout the Old Testament, God is revealing more of himself to this group of people, this Jew, these Jews, this, this, these people of Israel. And as he's revealing himself to them and talking about what their relationship with him looks like, he gave them certain things to do, certain practices, we might say, to remind them of their covenant with him. And one of these practices we have to understand to make sense of what's going on here, we find in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, it'll be on the screen, and here's what God says to the people of Israel through Moses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them, to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Strong language God uses talking about Israel's um, propensity to walk away from him. 
So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. And I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, how does this have anything to do with the story of a woman and a little girl? Well, here's what it means, and I think it's important for us to understand. God instructed the people of Israel to make garments, and one of these garments would be a prayer shawl. And this is, this is a, a Jewish prayer shawl. It has Hebrew written here, and I have no idea what it says, uh, but it's here. This is, a, this is a very traditional Jewish prayer shawl. And so what would happen, and God commanded the people that they are to wear as part of their garment, as part of their outfit, prayer shawls, and they would wear them like this. They'd put them around their shoulders, and they would walk around. And he says, I want you to wear these prayer shawls, and uh, these, the hymn right here is called the Kanaf. Kanaf. Can you say that? Kanaf. Very good. You're, you're, learning, uh, you're learning Hebrew. Very good. Uh, called the Kanaf. And, and, and these were on the edges. And the purpose of these was to remind the people of Israel about their covenant with God. And then on the four corners, and you'll see that in Numbers, he tells them, on four corners of this are what we would call tassels. Now, they're not called tassels. In the Hebrew, they're spelled T-Z-I-T. Z-I-T. Now, I read that as tzitzit, but that's not how you say it. Uh, uh, That's not not, not it. Uh, It's called zitzit. Can you say that? Very good. And so they were instructed on the corners of your garment, you are to fashion four zitzit, four tassels. Now, if we look in one of these, and it may be hard to see from where you are, there are five knots on this tassel, and this is zitzit, These five knots were representative of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And there's a foundation of the Jewish Jewish belief. Now, and then there's a strand that comes down, and you'll see here, it says, make one strand of a different color, and here it says blue. This one's actually purple. And so there'll be one strand, and this is to remind them of the covenant of God God with them. And one of the biggest things for, for Israel, the big thing, was them... Their, their heritage of their people being led out of Egypt, being delivered from Pharaoh. And that, that was their version of the cross, of God's big deliverance in their life. And so that was a representation of this. Now, if you can see, what color is this one? Purple. Now, if you were an everyday Jew, you did not have purple. See, purple was the most expensive dye that could be used. And so um, I actually did some research on this. One pound of purple dye would cost about equivalent to $100,000 in, in our, in our um, currency. Now, the question is, why is this so expensive? This is kind of cool. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but I thought it was neat. Uh, the, the way they made dye is they would extract this purple dye from a sea snail, like from a snail from the ocean. It would take about 10,000 snails to make one gram of dye, which is why you can imagine how many snails it would take for a pound, why it was so expensive. So most people did not carry a tzitzit that had purple, and it would have been blue, okay? And so the Jews would walk around, and they would hold this in their hands, and throughout the day, they would be reminded, it was a tactile reminder, this visual, this practice, that God is in covenant with them and to keep their commandments. And you can imagine, as people would walk around, they would be saying um, and quoting scripture to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart in your soul, in your strength, in your mind, when their hearts were tempted to turn away from God into their own lust of their eyes, lust of the flesh, they would have come back to this and say, no, I need to keep the Torah, keep the commandments. 
was this practice for them, this daily reminder of them. By the way, as they would walk, sometimes you can see, if I can get this here, these were also, this garment also became known as wings, and you can see why. Okay, and so a Jew would carry this everywhere they went. They would walk with this, these tassels, these zitzi, were these daily reminder, multiple times a day, reminder of their covenant with God. When they would go into the temple to pray, they would come in, they would say some liturgical prayers, they would enter in, and they would enter into their prayer closet. You heard the New Testament talk about the prayer closet. It's not where you keep your shoes. Here's the prayer closet. Right there. That's a prayer closet, Jewish prayer closet. Come in, into the temple, cover yourself with your cloak, and there's no distraction for you to pray to God. It was part of their life. And, and these came to re- represent more. Like, like we would see this, okay, it's a cool, cool piece of clothing, right? cool accessory to my outfit. Now, but here's what we have to understand about the, the Jewish understanding of this. This was more than just an accessory. This came, became to embody their person. So very much the type of tzitzit you have, the type of prayer garment you have would let other people know the type of person, your status. So if you had purple, you would walk around and you'd make sure everyone saw that purple because you are of nobility, you are of a wealthy family. It became your tzitzit was inseparable with who you are as a status symbol. Okay, now another random story that has no, nothing to do with my sermon today but from 1 Samuel 24, there's this weird story, if you guys remember this, where Saul is chasing David. He wants to kill him. You guys remember this story? And, and Saul goes into a cave. David's hiding in a cave. Saul goes into that cave to use a restroom. The Bible records this. Very interesting. It says he needed to relieve himself. So he goes in the cave. While he's in the cave, David slips up behind him. He wants to kill him, but instead of killing him, what does he do? This is the question you're supposed to answer. What's he do? Cuts off one of the tassels. Now, we're like, <laughs> good job, David, you got him. No, it's way deeper than that because here's what's happened. Saul comes out of the cave. David's like, hey, Saul, by the way, could have killed you. I cut, and, and Saul looks, and one of his tassels are removed. And here's what he says, quote, now I know that you will become king. See, this Tzitzit for Saul represented who he was. And when David slipped up behind him and cut this off, Saul knew that God was cutting him off as king and that David would be it. It was so much a part of his person that that was a moment Saul realized, my reign is done. And so if you were a Jew, you would carry this everywhere you go. You'd walk around and it would represent who you were, your relationship to God. Everything about you was part of this part of this tassel, this kanaf. So Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, right? I know all of our paintings of Jesus. He's a white guy with long hair and a white robe. He wasn't. He was a Jewish rabbi. And he came from this line of Jew. Here's what Jesus would have done. He would have walked around everywhere he went with the prayer shawl, with seat seat. And he would have said the commands of the Bible. He would have quoted scripture. I can imagine, and this, I don't know this, but I can imagine when Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, say, and he quotes a book, a passage from the Old Testament. I, I bet he, you've heard it said this. So it's every bit of what Jesus would have done wearing this. So as we picture this story today, we'll come back to this in a second and why this is important. Let's picture Jesus walking around as a Jewish rabbi 
perfectly following the commands of the Torah, including numbers, as this part of his person. And we'll get back to this in a second. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 40, Luke's continuing on telling us about who this Jesus person is. And he says, Jesus returns into this town and there's this large crowd that comes around him. And so here's what we have to know about Jesus now is he has reached celebrity status. Everywhere he goes, people have heard about him and there is a crowd that comes around him. And I want you to picture like uh, the thing I think is like the scenes of the Beatles when they're walking through and all the girls are like, oh, they want to touch him. Like that's the type of environment this is. Right? Jesus has people pressing around him, but yet he's accessible to the people. One thing we got to point out about Jesus, he doesn't stay back in a castle, in a palace. He comes in to the people. And he comes in this crowd, and we're introduced to a few faces in this crowd, a few characters in this crowd. And, and we have to know that among this crowd, there are Jesus' disciples, which there are 12 that, is, that are main disciples now, but there's also 60, 70, 80, 90 disciples of him that are following him. So there's a crowd there. We have just the spectators in the, in the town that want to come out and see who this Jesus guy is because they've heard about him. You have sick and lame and diseased and sinners that are wanting to come and find healing. So they're part of that crowd. I'm sure you have some Pharisees that are kind of standing back watching, looking for something they can do, uh, use to accuse Jesus because they hate him by this point. Like this is a scenario happening. And out of this scenario comes up a man running to Jesus. And his name is Jairus. It looks like it's spelled Jairus, and I've been, it's hard for me to remember. It's pronounced Jairus. And he, we're introduced to him. He's one of the faces in the crowd, and he is a leader of the synagogue. So here's what we need to know. He is at the top of society. The synagogue leader is one of the most respected in the town. He comes up, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Now, we have to note, this is risky for him to approach Jesus. The synagogue leader and the Pharisees, they're, I mean, they're right here. They're linked together. And for him to come up and approach Jesus and ask Jesus for help, he is putting himself at risk of, of really for his job. So apparently, whatever's happening with his daughter, it's so bad, and he must have tried everything he can that finally he's got to come to Jesus. He's like, my daughter is dying, and if I don't do something, she will die. Parents, this is, our, is this not our worst fear? We've never had, by the grace of God, this huge medical emergency with one of our kids. I did to it when, when Aaron was little, we had to take her in to get an IV because she was like really dehydrated. And I just remember, even knowing there was something that could be fixed. I remember the anxiety coming over me. And some parents here have walked with your children through some very scary moments. But I got to put myself in the story of Jairus, who is watching his 12-year-old daughter. He's lived with her for 12 years, and he's watched her get sick, more sick and more sick. And there's not an ER to go to. He's tried everything. He's at his last hope, and he comes to Jesus. Can you imagine the helplessness? And he comes to Jesus and he, he implores him to come. Jesus, you must come because my daughter is about to die. And so you can imagine the, the, the crowd listens to this. And it was, here's another face. So we have Jairus, the synagogue leader. Then we have another person in the crowd, another face. And this is a woman. We don't know how old she is. All we know is that for 12 years, 
She has had an issue with nonstop bleeding. Now, side note, it's interesting. The girl that's sick is 12 years old. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. I have no idea the significance, but it's there. But we're introduced to this woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know what happened. Maybe it's something that happened in childbirth, but, but we know it's some sort of maybe like uterine bleeding, a hemorrhaging there that, that won't stop. And for 12 years, she has had a nonstop problem with uncontrolled bleeding. Now, even our society, can you imagine the, the embarrassment, the, the shame, uh, the, the feeling of being unsanitary, being disgusting? This is, and I don't want to be disgusting. I mean, this is before products were available to control things like that. So it would have been obvious everywhere she went. Even in our day, I mean, this would be embarrassing. This would be hard. This would be shameful. But here's what we got to understand. And I, and I don't think, I don't know that we can re- really comprehend this. But her issue with blood, the bigger problem, even over the uncleanness and, and embarrassment, her issue with blood made her unclean. I don't know that we can quite comprehend what it meant to be labeled unclean. If she had a husband, she was no longer allowed to be with him. She was cast out of her home. If she had a child, if that's maybe what caused this, she is no longer allowed to be around her child. She is unclean. She can't be around society. We learn here that she has spent all of her money trying to go to doctors to get, get, to get this fixed. So it tells me at some point in her life, she was part of society. She had money. But she is cast out. And the deeper shame is that she was also labeled unclean, which meant she could not come to the synagogue. She could not come to the temple. She could not enter And so she had been told, you are cursed by God. And you're not allowed into God's presence. You are cut off. And so if you can imagine, every morning when she wakes up and that blood appears is a visual reminder of her being an outcast by God. Talk about a spiritual abuse. She lived it. She has no money. There's no social services, no cap on out-of-pocket expenses. She is hopeless. And so we're introduced to these two people. And let's make sure, because I think Luke wants us to see this. Let's make sure and understand. So we have two faces. We have Jairus over here and the woman over here. Jairus is in the in crowd. She's an outcast. Jairus, he's respected. She is cast away. He's high, she's low, he's righteous, she's a sinner. He leads the synagogue, she can't enter the synagogue. These are two totally opposite people. And both of them come into the, are in part of this crowd. They're two of the faces in the crowd. And it's in this crowd with these people that we see this really cool story happen. And so as Jesus was walking through, he's walking through and all of a sudden he stops and he says, whoa, 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 someone touched me. Now, I wish we had the video. I wish we had a movie of this, right? And the disciples are like, Jesus, come on. Of course, everyone, everyone is touching you. Man, think of this, like everyone trying to get to him. Jesus, everyone is touching. He's like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. And he stops and the whole crowd goes quiet. 
And he said, who touched me? And you can imagine just like, silence. Everyone's like looking down, trying to make eye contact. This happens in my small group every week. I ask a question, they look down. And I, now I start calling on the people that don't make eye contact. So now they're all look up at me. No one's, and finally, it says, she emerges out of the crowd trembling. It was me. Now, why is she trembling? Multiple reasons. Number one, I think she knows who she's dealing with. But number two, for her as an unclean person to come and touch someone that was clean was against the law. She probably could have been killed. She said it was me. And, this, and then Luke says, she goes on to explain that she touched him. Now, question, when you read the passage, where did she touch Jesus? This is where you talk back to me. The fringe of his garment. Kanaf. Right here. So Jesus walking around with his prayer shawl around his neck, just like this. And the woman comes up and she touches right here. Maybe the tzitzit, one of these, she touches it. Why? Like there's no magical power necessarily. And all kinds of people are touching him. All kinds of people are touching his cloak. Nothing's supernatural. Why does she touch this? Well, here's why. Because one of the last promises the Jews had came from the book of Malachi, the last chapter of the Bible, the Old Testament. And now it's been silent for 400 years. And one of the last things they have to hold, up, hold upon that this woman must have heard is the book of Malachi. And here's what it says in verse 4. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that's a term for the Messiah, shall rise with healing in his, what? Kanaf, wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. See, the promise of the prophet Malachi is one day the Messiah would come, and in his wings, in his kanaf, there would be healing. Why did she touch the fringe of his garment? She believed he was the Messiah. He was the one that was promised. And if I can just get to him, she knew Malachi. And even though maybe a little bit different, like obviously Jesus' clothes aren't supernatural just because there's clothes, but she believed the book of Malachi. She believed the Messiah was come. She sees Jesus. She knows the Messiah will come with healing in his kanaf and his wings. And if I can just get to him because he is the Messiah and touch them, I will be healed. And that's why Jesus said to her, verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So Jesus addresses her, and he doesn't expose her shame. He exposes her faith. She believed the promise of God. She believed the text. She believed the Messiah would come, and in his wings would be healing. And she believed it, and so she touched it. Remember, everyone's touching him. But it's her faith that allows the healing power of Jesus to come over her. So faith is the avenue through which God's healing comes. 
Now, here's a question as I read this, I was, rest, I was just thinking about. Why did Jesus stop the crowd? Now, let's pause. We kind of forgot right now, but what's the crisis at hand? Do you remember? What's the crisis? My daughter is dying. Right? Now, I was, uh, I was talking to Royce. We were at the, the Missouri State game yesterday, staying in a hotel, and, and he's a doctor. He's one of our elders. And I was talking to him about the story, and I, we were talking about the idea of triage, right? And then with, as, as a doctor, if he's in the ER and people come into the ER, there's kind of six levels, that numbers that would get assigned to them uh, for triage, right? And if you get assigned uh, like, like a number one, it means you have a runny nose, you're going to sit in the corner and wait for several hours. But if you get assigned, if you come in and you have like, uh, you know, pain in your chest or you've been in a car wreck and there's something like, you're going to get a six and you're going, you're going straight back, it's triage. As Jesus is looking at these two people, which one makes sense? If you're a triage doctor, which one are you going for? Woman, 12 years of bleeding, 12-year-old girl about to die, which one do you go for? Dying girl, right? But notice, Jesus stops, and the whole time he's interacting with this woman, what seems like it took a few minutes, maybe even longer, he may have taught some things there. Here is Jairus. And you got to be thinking like, Jesus, come on. But Jesus stops, and he engages this woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And as I thought about this, why did Jesus take so much time with this woman when this is going on? Here's what I think he's doing. He, he healed her physically, but here's the deal. He could have just kept going. She's already healed physically. He didn't have to stop and engage her. But he's not only healing her physically, he stops and he announces her, her healing spiritually. Daughter, go in peace. Then I also think what Jesus is doing in this crowd is restoring her socially. She is no longer an outcast woman who's bleeding. She is someone that's healed. I have pronounced her as one that has faith. She is at peace with God. She is now restored in this community. So it's this cool story here, but Jairus has got to be dying. I mean, he's got to be just beside himself. And in verse 49, his worst fears are realized. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, which again tells me he went on to tell some stories or talk or preach. Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Worst fear, worst fear of any parent. Your daughter is dead. I mean, when hearing this, I can imagine Jairus just collapses in grief. But Jesus, on verse 50, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, faith, and she will be well. So it's interesting. Faith is what heals this woman. And now Jesus is inviting Jairus, hey, faith, don't fear. And so Luke tells us, he goes on into the house where this little girl has just died. And, and he, when he arrives at the house, there are people weeping. And what happens in Jewish culture is actually professional mourners would come. When someone was sick or about to die or when someone died, 
professional mourners would come, that their job was to weep and wail. So this would have been this hysterical environment where the, the mom, Jairus himself, they're sad. You've got all these, these, these Jewish people that are wailing and weeping and crying and tearing their clothes. And Jesus shows up on the scene and that's what's going on. He says, hey, she's not dead, she's asleep. And they laugh at him like, no, she, she's dead. We've done this before. Jesus excuses the mourners and says, you guys go outside. And he comes in with just a couple of his disciples. And you can see this account in other books of the Bible. And a couple of them will even give some more details. But he comes up to the little girl and he says this, verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise. Now, in other, in other accounts, it will actually say that the word that Jesus said in, in, uh, in his language and it's this idea of like little precious child. It's kind of the words that Jesus used. And her spirit returned. She got up at once. And he directed that something should be given for her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them, don't tell anyone what happened. So two stories here of... Jesus walking along the crowd and he stops to engage this woman that has a sickness and then he goes on to the synagogue leader's house and he raises to life a girl that had died. Now let's look at big picture. Why is this here? Like what, what do we learn? Why, why did Luke include this, these stories into his account here? Well, if we remember from Luke chapter 1, why he even wrote his book, I think it will help us understand what he is doing here. Because remember, we can't look at the Bible, just one little verse, and look in like this. We have to look out, big picture, and say, what is Luke trying to communicate? He's telling these stories for a reason. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 1. He says, it seemed good to me. This is Luke talking. Having followed all of these things closely, including these stories that we just told you, for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis. So he's writing to this guy named Theopolis, and what's his goal? To write an orderly account, which he's doing here, and I'll, I'll tell you the order in just a second, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why did Luke write his gospel? So that Theopolis, his friend, would believe. Here's what Luke says. I am a doctor and physician, I'm a historian, like, I'm not going to believe in this Jesus guy just because someone says, hey, believe in Jesus. I'm going to go do the research. And we know that Luke went to all kinds of eyewitnesses, probably these professional mourners, probably the synagogue leader. Eyewitnesses said, okay, you tell me what happened. Tell me the story of what happened. And he does all of his research, and Luke comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the promised Messiah that has come. And now he writes to this other guy saying, hey, listen, you can have confidence that he is who he says he is. And apparently Luke was convinced enough that he gave his life up to spread the name of Jesus, became Paul's traveling companion. So what is Luke trying to teach us? Why does he, in his orderly account, why some of these stories that we've been in over the past few weeks? Here's why I think. All these stories show us Jesus' willingness to step into what we fear the most. Let's back up a little bit. 
Last week, Brad read the story of Jesus calming the storm, of this natural disaster, these unexplained things in nature that can come over us at any moment. A story we, I accidentally messed up and skipped over. Jesus um, casts demons out of someone and puts them in pigs and they run off a ledge. When I outlined this, for some reason I just forgot to put that in my notes. We'll come back to that story. Maybe Halloween will look like a good demon, <laughs> demon story there. Okay, but the supernatural, the fears around that. Now Jesus, or Luke, brings us to two stories of sickness and death. Natural disaster, supernatural, like demon, evil, sickness, death. Here's what Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is not detached from humanity. He is willing and able to step into what you and I fear the most and take what was broken and repair it, to take what was unclean and make it clean. Jesus participates in the brokenness of the world. He didn't remove himself. He didn't remove himself from what was unclean. He changed the status of what was unclean. That was good. I'm going to say it again. He did not remove himself from what was unclean. He stepped in and changed the status of what was unclean. Is that not your hope? Huh? Come on. That's our hope. Our hope is not that I can somehow make myself clean and say, Jesus, here I am. No. My hope is that Jesus steps in the midst of my brokenness and says, you are clean. If he doesn't have that power, we're wasting our time this morning. Luke wants you to see that Jesus is not just this miracle hero that comes along, that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the book of Malachi that will come with healing in his wings. He did it. Eyewitnesses prove it. And you and I can trust him. That in the midst of our brokenness, he will step in. He is not detached. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. But Jesus will show you the heart of God here. Jesus came as God in the flesh. God is not detached from your brokenness saying, yeah, sorry, figure it out. Jesus came in and he felt the weight of it. Jesus interacted with a poor little woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and outcast from sight and he felt the weight of that rejection. Jesus sees a dad weeping over his daughter who's dying. Jesus sees this little precious 12-year-old girl and sees it and knows the brokenness there. And he says, little girl, get up. Jesus participate, participates in brokenness. There's this great verse. It's really short. It's shortest in the Bible. Jesus wept. You know where that verse comes from? It comes from when his friend Lazarus dies and Jesus shows up on the scene and the same thing, like it's hysterical. The mourners are around. His friends are weeping. Listen, Jesus knows he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could have walked in like, guys, quit crying. Boom, boom, and Lazarus walks out. Jesus shows up on the scene. He sees the pain and brokenness of sin, of death, and what he is overcome with emotion. He weeps. Not because he has no power to enter. He weeps because he feels the brokenness of the world. He feels it. You ever been there like, I absolutely, absolutely love my job. I love the opportunity. And not this. I mean, this is fun, but I love to walk with people and, and, to, and to step in and love people in the midst of brokenness. And that's where a lot of times I get to be involved. 
And I love every second of it, but there are times, there are days, or sometimes weeks where it just feels like this weight of I've heard this story and then this story and this story and I heard this and I want to just go throw up in the trash can after I heard this story. And sometimes just feeling the weight of the brokenness of myself and others. And it's a weight, and some of you know that weight. But here's what I'm reminded of when we look at Jesus. Jesus feels the weight in an entirely different level than you and I do on two fronts. Number one, Jesus knows shalom. Like all you and I know is a world of brokenness, correct? Anyone ever lived in Eden? All we know is brokenness. All we know is people with disease. All we know is little girls dying. See, Jesus knows the design. He knows shalom. He's seen it. He's seen peace. He's seen a lamb with no death, no sickness, no sin, no brokenness, no abuse. He's seen it. And because he's seen that and he knows the world that God intended, that he intended to have, and he steps into earth, takes on flesh, and he feels the brokenness we see and in those moments becomes overwhelmed with grief and he weeps, he feels the brokenness. From the time Jesus stepped in, he started absorbing the brokenness and sin in this world. Here's what John Calvin says, a great quote I found in my research. From the moment that Jesus assumed flesh, he began to pray the price of our liberation. So as Jesus absorbs the sin of this woman and the brokenness of this woman and the sin of, the, of death here, he's already starting to take on the brokenness of the world upon himself. See, Jesus is not just a miracle worker, he's a savior. And this story's not really about two people that got healed. It's not like we gotta look bigger than that. We gotta look deeper into this story. Because here's the reality. The woman that had blood that was healed, eventually she died. The little girl, eventually she died. Like the story is not about them. We gotta go higher that and see the story is about a God that is capable to step into brokenness. Now, Jesus could have remained on the earth. He could still be here walking around saying, okay, be healed, be healed, be healed. That's not his point. His point was not to treat the symptoms of sin and brokenness. His point was to go after the heart of sin and brokenness, sin, and he took it upon himself. He was not just a miracle worker. He was a savior, and that's why he goes to the cross, and we're about to switch in the book of Luke where we see Jesus' journey for that appointed time where he will take on sin and death upon himself. See, Luke wants you to see that God's promise to Israel of this Messiah coming happened, promise fulfilled. The son of righteousness came with healing in his wings. And now, to Theopolis and to us, we're waiting on the next promise because here's the promise of God. The next time the Messiah comes, he'll not just be wearing a prayer shawl. You don't look at Revelation, he'll come on a white horse with a tattoo and a sword to kill evil forever. Look at it, you think I'm lying, the tattoo part especially, it's there. So now here we are, looking back at this account, and eyewitnesses saying, Jesus is who he says he is, he's God, he's, he's God in the flesh, and he has power over everything that I fear. That promise was fulfilled, just like God said it was, then maybe the promise that he has for me now, that he will come in and take care of this forever, that will be fulfilled. 
I'm not going to wrap this in a nice little bow and say, if you just go to Jesus and have enough faith, he will heal you from all of you. He may not. Now, he might. We'll pray for that. But Jesus did not come just as a healer for sickness and disease. He came to take sin upon himself. And I think that's what Luke's communicating. Now, to end, I always want to take that, right? We understand. We don't want to make the Bible about me. We understand what's going on, what Luke's trying to communicate. But now let's ask the question, what about me? What about us? What does this look like? And we could go multiple directions. Here's where I'm going to go, and we'll close with this. So we all come here um, with brokenness, shame, sickness, sin. Jesus doesn't participate in our brokenness. He transforms our brokenness. That's the promise. He transforms it. So we talk a lot here, um, and if you've been here very long, we talk a lot here and we say things like this. When you come to Hill City, you don't have to hide. Like you don't have to have your Christian face on that says, oh, I love Jesus, and my kids got up and undressed to school to, uh, to church today, and there was no problems. I never yelled at them once. Like you don't have to be that person. Like you can come as you are, right? And we've said like you can come with your addictions, with your struggles, and say, here's where I am. I need help. Now, let me make sure we understand this. We're not creating a community that just come and the self-help, oh, here's what I'm doing. Oh, okay, me too. Okay, well, now we all feel better about ourselves. That's not the goal. Jesus does not just want to participate in our brokenness. He wants to transform it. Here's the reality. Some of you come full of anxiety this morning. Full of anxiety. And you believe, maybe like the woman, this is just my lot in life. This is what I will deal with for the rest of my life. And I think in the midst of that, Jesus' invitation would be, hey, step out of the crowd and have faith that I can heal that. You see that? The woman, Jairus, they could have stayed back in the crowd and just kind of watched. Well, it's great for that person, but, but they stepped out. And they said, Jesus, help me. One through his, through his mouth, one through her faith by touching the garment. They stepped out and they approached Jesus. Some of you this morning, those are full of self-righteousness. You're full of this, this idea that I'm better than everyone. And I've got to be perfect. I've got to clean myself up. I don't cuss, and so I'm better than all of you. In the midst of that, Jesus wants to step in and heal that brokenness and bring peace and life. Some of you are full of deep bitterness towards someone who's hurt you. Man, they hurt you bad. And every bit of you just wants to see them get theirs. And in the midst of that brokenness, Jesus would invite you to step out and say, let me transform that brokenness. Many of us come in here this morning with a broken sexuality. Looks different. We all experience it. And we can hear stories of people finding healing, be like, well, that's great for them. And Jesus' invitation will say, step out of the crowd and let me start to transform that brokenness. Like that's the invitation, that Jesus is capable and that through faith in him, he will start to transform my brokenness, that he has the power to do that. It's interesting, if I look at all these stories, Jesus with the storm, Jesus with the pigs, this woman, the sickness, this girl with death, it's the things we fear the most. And one of the themes you'll find in every one of these stories is the following phrase, do not fear. 
Do not fear. As I have overcome. Listen to me, I don't know what you're going through, but it will not have the last word in Christ. It will not. Because Jesus is above all. And I'll leave you with this benediction that he leaves her with, the woman. It says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus pronounces peace to someone in the midst of brokenness that was, that was beforehand cut off. And I think that's the message he would give us this morning. In Christ, peace.